Three, two, one, go. Welcome to More to Come, PW Comic World's weekly podcast on graphic novel and comics publishing, recorded at the PW offices in New York City. I'm Calvin Reed, Senior News Editor of Publishers Weekly, Editor of PW Comics World, and Editor of The Fanatic, PW's new comics and pop culture newsletter. Check us out online at publishersweekly.com slash comics. Hi, and I'm Heidi McDonald. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of The Beat at comicsbeat.com, and you can find us on Twitter at at PW Comics World. And I'm Kate Fitzsimmons, I'm a podcast producer, and you can find us online on Tumblr at pwcommonsworld.tumblr.com. Ah, and you can subscribe to more to come on iTunes, and on Facebook, we're at facebook.com slash pwcommicsworld, and... And don't forget, please let us know uh, what you think of the show. Uh, write us a note, leave us a comment, rate us, even if it's a, even if it's a not great rated, just let us know that you're listening. Uh, we love to hear comments, we love to hear suggestions, and we are love to hear from our audience. Yes, we do. So, drop us a line. Alright, this week on More to Come, preview of FlameCon, uh, the Harvey Award nominations, um, unfortunately, the return of Rosenberg and Rev. Uh, Dan and Jim, the Dan and Jim show talks to, uh, IC, ICV2 and upcoming TVs and movies. So, uh, FlameCon, uh, the queer Comic Con comes up this weekend. Yeah, so that it is a two day Comic Con. It is running as always, well, not as always, it was originally a hometown Brooklyn Con, but it has moved to Midtown Manhattan now. Um, and we've been there for most of its existence, and uh, it's a great show. Yeah. I mean, it's not just a great show for LGBT interests. Like, it's, as a show, it is genuinely a very well-run, medium-sized Comic-Con. I would say, I, I think we've talked about it before, that it's really become the number two show in New York. I mean, I think sure. it's a clip to Mocha, Mocha a bit, or, you know, on par with Mocha. But it's mm. way on par with Mocha. But, it's, but it is bigger. It is way bigger than Mocha, I will say mm. that. It hits a different audience. Yes, yeah, absolutely. But it's really become uh, just a huge meeting point. I mean, more people are more excited about coming to FlameCon, well, i yeah. got to say, because it's really, you know, one of the, the biggest queer-themed mm. comics yeah. events yeah. of the well, year well, uh, in North America. Mocha doesn't talk. Mocha doesn't tap fan energy in the same way. No, not at all. Blankon is aimed at and successfully produces the same kind of sheer fan id-filled joy of a (laughs) proper Comic-Con. Yes. Whereas Mocha is a fest. (laughs) It is is a place for people to appreciate art, which is a little different. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure the difference is that big, but, but, um, no, in, sir- vi- in vibe, the vibe, the experience, the mm. fan experience is different. Mm. Absolutely. And I, I think mm. even just looking at some of the programming for FlameCon, I mean, it is very, mm. it is very much targeted at the very, very participatory nature of a lot of today's mm-hmm. fandom. Yeah. Um, I'm just looking at the paneling it, now. It's, it's fandom aimed. It's, yes. The idea mm. is that it's, mm. it's not well, hitting. Well, I, I yeah. I agree. I agree that going there is a great fan experience. Uh, I have the same kind of enjoyment going there that I do going to Mocha and SBX. Uh, there's full of young artists who are uh, connecting with fans, showing off new work. 
Uh, I think some of the fans, in my experience at going to FlameCon, maybe a little younger, um, more emerging, but there's also veterans artists there, like in any other show. But it's out, without a doubt, it's one of the fastest growing shows. It's full of great energy, and it's just a great new indie comics really, festival on the New York scene. It really scene. is. And just looking at, oh, okay, now I was going to read off this other guest, but go ahead. Well, I was going to say, Calvin, is I think, what you're saying is you are getting what you get out of SPS. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. That, that's is, all I'm saying. Which is valid, right? You're getting the whole indie show, emerging artists, kind of, uh, you know, ground level kind of thing. Yeah. But in addition to that, it also has, you know, the cosplay, the like... Uh, podcasting. Podcasting. Mm-hmm. Like that's true. Fans, uh, tabletop games. The, the, that's the, true. Just the, the sheer hit to the id of fandom. Yeah. Um, in a way that I feel like fests are wonderful, mm-hmm. but do not have that, like, candy-coated experience. Yes, and sure. for one thing, uh, there, there there's always fantastic cosplay at FlameCon. That's absolutely right. Yeah. Which is, and cosplay is... You know, it's actively discouraged at T. Yeah, yeah, you don't, you don't see it. You know, yeah, I mean, they absolutely. don't discourage at SPX, but you know, it's not done. It's, it's yeah, you don't really see it. Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right about that. Do that. Yeah. You don't really see that at the uh, at the comics fest. You're Whereas, right. you know, so, Con has a contest. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And just I'm going to read some of the, the guests though. Mm-hmm. Uh, Food for thought. Jay Edidin, Miles Stokes, Luciano Vecchio, Ed Luz, Rosemary Valero O'Connell, Mariko Tamaki of uh, Laura Dean Moonstop Breaking Up With Me. Amazing book. It Crystal is. Frazier, DJ Kirkland, Josh Trujillo, Melanie Gilman. Yeah, mm-hmm. Wendy Shu, Kate Leff, Tom Raban Villan, Vita Ayala, Jen Partel, Steve Orlando. You know, a lot of these people... I first met at FlameCon like three or four years ago, mm-hmm. and, and and now get big. Yes, they they're mainstream. Uh, Kate uh, left. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And yep. and so you know, I think it really speaks to the uh, you know FlameCon absolutely is, uh, centered on queerness and you know the 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 many offshoots, the many alphabet letters of the plus. Uh, but when you, but it, like Kate was saying, it really does speak to today's very active fandom and, and their participation and desire for representation. Absolutely. Yeah. No, without a doubt. And, and if you are an ally, you're more than welcome to come and you will enjoy yourself. However, if you are a vendor and you are planning to come to FlameCon and, uh, don't have anything that's LGBT interest, you might want to rethink that decision because one year uh, Con Edison came <laughs> and that was pointless for them. And two years in a row, someone who had a uh, a science fiction porn series oh, yes. came <laughs> and uh, did not have anything that wasn't straight. Leading people to go, but why are you here? Well, yeah, yeah. for sure. I see, uh, Calvin, I see your, your pal, uh, Liz Francis. That's I, I just noticed the, that myself, yeah. one of the sponsors there. So, yeah. uh, you know, webtoons, uh, Blick art materials. Yeah. Anyway, uh, you know, we're, despite our excitement over it, I know I haven't really planned anything. <laughs> Substance, I don't know what I'm going to do. I just know FlameCon is coming. I know what I'm going to do. I am going to do my nails. I have to get my there nails done. Maybe my well, hair. Well, I, I am I am going to be wearing my Crowley from Good Omens cosplay. Yes. I say cosplay because I am not, as in quasi-cosplay, because I am not, like, bringing out a sewing machine or spending money on items of clothing. I it, think I might have spent my entire life in cosplay. 
What? What? Half dressed up as a character? Yeah, sort of. Yeah, 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 yeah. Alright. So were you playing Heidi McDonald or somebody else? Just, you know, maybe some other characters deep down inside. (laughs) Um, Well, you know, speaking of, I just mentioned uh, Laura Dean won't stop breaking up on me. Uh, so the Harvey Award nominations were announced this oh, week, Kevin? Yeah. Yes, they were. Yeah. Um, and, oh, they look pretty, pretty interesting. Uh, shall we go down the list of the nominees? Well, I mean, we could discuss them. Yeah, let's do. Well, um, you know, they've got, you know, it's interesting because they've got a more compact list of, you right. know, of categories. So, uh, also, you know, speaking of Laura, Dean won't stop breaking up with me, uh, two Harvey nominations. And the Harvey Awards, uh, nominations for 2019 were announced this week, Kelvin. Yeah, uh, and, uh, they look really interesting. Obviously, they've got a, um, a more reduced and compact slate of categories, but each category really has got a pretty impressive selection of books. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I think the thing they, they've got, went for is a short ceremony, but lots of honorees. <laughs> and you know what? I'll nominations. Go, I will go for that. I that got is, no problem I'm, with I'm right it. down with that. Uh, uh, and you know. Uh, yeah, the guy who, you know, hosted it last that's year. That's right, <laughs> <laughs> I forgot all about that. Uh, you know, um, a very distinguished MC. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, rookie MC. But, um, and it, this looks really good. What uh, do I have to do to get an invitation? Um, you know, I don't think I it's know. that hard to well, get an invitation, is it, it? It is and it isn't. It's, um, you know, we've talked a lot about the Harveys here. Over yeah, years. that's for so sure. So there's been quite a few, uh, bumps in the Harvey Road. Including inviting all the people who should be invited. But you know, Kate, uh, Calvin is sure to be able to get in as a host, hostess emeritus. <laughs> yes, so I'll say just yeah. hang with Calvin, just or me, and we'll, or we'll get you invited. I'll look into it. But if there's any question at all, you know, you should be invited. So there shouldn't be a problem. I can get make sure to check. Yes. You yeah, Calvin, invited. you got I'm some sure. pull there? Apparently. Yes. Well, we'll see. <laughs> I, I, I got enough pull to get my producer into the dog right, right, ceremony, right. sure. Um, but, if, but, but let's take a close look at some of these titles, because really, uh, there's also a bunch of titles that we've been talking about all year long. Yeah. And I, and I, I'm going to start out by mentioning uh, a really unusual title that I don't think the comics world has talked about uh, enough, and that's Nora Krug's Belonging, A German Records with History and Home. Oh, yeah. This yeah. is a fantastic piece of autobiography. The research into it is amazing. The visual style is incredibly eclectic and riveting. Uh, it won the National Book Critics Circle Award for autobiography. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this is a prose award. Yeah, yeah, they ain't yeah, giving yeah. out too many emails. To yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. This book has got a lot of attention in literary circles, but uh, hasn't been talked to us as much in comments. about published by Scribner. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, it's it's uh, extraordinary. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, you know, a couple of other, uh, you know, Up on a Sunbeam by Tilly Walden, yes. Berlin mm-hmm. by Jason Lutz, who talked about this uh Big double by uh, frequent guest on the show, Ezra Clayton Daniels. Yes, he's nominated for both Upgrade Soul and for Bottom. I know that's a twofer drawn by Bed Passmore. So you know, really um, pretty extraordinary for Ezra, and you know what? Very well deserved. I love. Oh yeah, yeah, smart guy, and and both of the books really deserve to be on here. Check these on the list. Uh, that's in the under the digital book uh, yeah. of the year award, We're still absolutely. Book of the year. But d- okay. just quickly, I would like to also mention that you know the uh, the best new graphic novel of the year by Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips, My Heroes Have Always Been Junkies, also on the on this yes. list. Yes. Um, so, um, on Kate Digital. Uh, but yes, Ngozi, without a doubt. Yeah, Jack Please is on there. I 
I still feel a little bit chuff because yes. I managed to snag the first interview. You had the first interview. There's was no the doubt. first pure I was really in the office and was like, you guys, you guys, we have to cover this, yes. you guys. And I didn't know, I, I really didn't know anything about her until you brought it up. Yeah, so... Um, uh, I do think it's interesting that uh, she's a digital book of the year. Because it seems like one of her books has been at the top of the thing every year for the last three or four well, years. Well, our digital. You know, you know <laughs> yes. she is purely digital first. It always comes out on the website first. That's, okay. That's true. Um, you know, like, they tried to slim down these categories. There are only six. Um, you know, also on there at the Nib, uh, yeah, Matt yeah. Ward, mm-hmm. which we have, we have an interview with him, too. That's right. We've talked to him as well. And, uh, yeah, I don't think we even talked on the show about the Nib being back on its own, but, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, that's true. Uh, that's something we should yeah. probably talk but, about. But, uh, you know, Best Children's or Young Adult, they just crammed it all in there together. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Hey Kiddo, Laura D, hey Mr. Yeah. Wolf's Class, New Kid by Jerry Kraft. Uh, Jerry Kraft is yes. a guest on the show. Absolutely, and Jerry Kraft. Uh, he's the hard hardest working man in um, the kid lit business. And I think Tilly Walden's been a guest on the show. Yeah, well, yeah. So, uh, best manga, Ginger Ito. He has mm. not been a guest on the show. Very sad. <laughs> We'd love to have him on. Yeah, though. My Hero Academia, <laughs> Smash, Which Hat, Atelier, Our Dream at Dusk, and mm. Mob Psycho 100. Wow, I don't even know half of these. So. I, I'm, fortunately, I'm a little behind on the manga, yeah. too. So. Uh, yeah, so uh, the, one, the only ones I know on there are... Uh, Mob Psycho 100 and My Hero Academia. The others, I, I admittedly do not know. A bunch of Jinji Ito on here. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Interesting yes. moment. He, yes. Well, he is, and without yes. a doubt, across the board. Yeah. Um, best European book. Uh, I, I see uh, IDW's uh, beautiful archival editions of um, Hugo Pratt's Corto Matisse are on it, on it deservedly uh, so. Yes, as well as uh, mm. Beat Favorite, Oh Josephine by Jason, mm-hmm. uh, Total mm-hmm. uh, Radiant, Red Ultramarine, Waves. And then uh, the Best Comics Adaptation Award was a little cheesy, but, you know, I think they wanted to get in some of the Many, many, many. Yeah, they're trying to steal a little thunder from the movie business but it's there. It's not just movies. It's interesting because what it is is a wide, wide array of things that could be seen as an adaptation. So not only does it have some movie adaptations, but it has. Yeah, there's a stage. There's uh, a stage. Adaptation. The Snagglepuss Chronicles is mm-hmm. on there, which is uh, the com- a comic, comic based on a cartoon. Yes. Yeah. We have um, a couple TV shows. We have a game. Well, mm-hmm. let's read them. There's Alita Battle Angel, the movie, yes. Avengers Ed Game, Captain Marvel, uh, which the are, are, are the, the boys. Well, mm-hmm. I'm reading them in order of what the media is. Oh, okay. mm-hmm. So, which are movies. Uh, mm-hmm. And then there's uh, streaming shows, Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, Doom Patrol, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, the Umbrella Academy and the boy the boys as I mentioned oh and then Spider Man and the Spider Verse well that better yeah. win because that was the greatest one of all times <laughs> That's pretty, uh, yes. yeah and then the game Marvel Spider Man by Insomniac Games so you know oh that's yeah that's, that's interesting I didn't notice that so yeah that's eclectic company yeah, yeah. Pretty smart. But yes. it's better to have one category yeah. like this yeah. that can yeah. catch whatever you need to than try and come up with a, middle, uh, a million mini categories. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, I guess nothing on there I wouldn't, I would argue with. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I agree. You know, I mean, Calvin, have they talked to you again? I mean, are you holding out? No, I haven't heard anything. No. I'll talk to my agent. Yeah, you better, you know. Uh, you gotta get well, I, Bob Hope, you know. I you, think they, you know, I, they, I think they know I'm always around, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they well, can grab me at the last minute. Get the call very late last year. I did indeed, so it wouldn't be surprised me if I got another late yeah. call. You can call and ask, hey, do you want me 
they prep something? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> That's well, true. Uh, anyway, listen, we are friends of the Harvey Awards. We do pick on them a little bit for when they have some uh, little hiccupies. Like, my big thing is they need food. They have to have food. If you're going to have people an open bar, give them some food. They get you something. Otherwise, because I'll tell you, <laughs> there's nosh. been two kind of sloppy events here. <laughs> well, I mean, admittedly, I feel, as someone who does not drink at events, because that's just not a thing I do, um... I personally would really much prefer they have food. Yes. Please, yes, have a plate of hors Of course. Of course. You need to have food. At a, yeah, you, I think they, have they, didn't they have, like, trail mix or something? They had the breadsticks. <laughs> that was, that was, yeah. Yeah. They had little thin, thin, thin Italian breadsticks. And then an open bar. And, uh, listen, it was a mess. I, I, I'll tell you this. At 11 o'clock, no, 10 p.m., I was at the pancake house eating pancakes with some other people desperately trying to recover our senses. And you know what we did? Just like James Bond at Casino Royale. And we went on uh, from there. We went to the Marvel party. (laughs) The swinging life of comics journalists. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's in New York Comic Con. So anyway, Harvey's a comic. So, uh, some more news. Uh, well, um, we got some. We got the one of the the battle royale. We got a battle royale no. here, but it, this is the story of the century, maybe. No, it's not really. But <laughs> well, I don't know about that. It's, but it's, it's 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 so you know Rob Liefeld, who uh, you know he's a friend of the beat. He's been on this podcast. Yes, he has. He's been, in oh, fact, he's some... been on one of our highest rated yes, episodes absolutely. ever. Was Rob? And, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Podcasters, if you're looking for someone who's here <laughs> ratings gold, yeah, please get, consider Rob. Get Rob on yes. absolutely. So check uh, your numbers up. Yes. So uh yeah. So you know. So let's just say we're you know we're in very very friendly terms with Rob. I mean he has a a colorful career, but uh anyway he went on to Facebook and wrote, "Look, I'm just coming clear with this. Just everybody asked me when is Young Blood coming back? Young Blood is the character that he created. That was the very first Image comic ever published." And he said, uh, well, it's not. So the story that emerged was that more than 20 years ago, he had sold the rights to Youngblood to Scott Rosenberg. Now, you, I think we've probably mentioned him back in the early days of yeah. this podcast. Yeah, it's kind of a generic name. So yeah, Scott Mitchell Rosenberg. Scott Mitchell, to, to differentiate himself from other Scott Rosenbergs, he has a very long history in comics. Uh, started, he was 14 years old when he started Sunrise Distribution, one of these teen tyros. Uh, went on to run Malibu Comics, then Platinum Studios, which is controversial. Uh, to I say mean, the least. Yes, to say the least. Uh, we ran quite a few stories about it. We ran a very detailed yes. and actually quite good story by Van Jensen yes. uh, that broke down the scheme and, and all of his financial problems. But, yeah, go on. Scheme would certainly be a generous way of putting it. Uh, well, uh, so, anyway, so Rob had teamed up with Rosenberg back in the 90s uh, because... But unbeknownst to people, I mean, this was not public knowledge. So, all right, fair enough. You needed money back in the 90s, so you sold your rights to Rosenberg. But then they had a partnership all along, whenever somebody would come along, um, you know. Robert promoted. I guess, yeah, Robert promoted. So, uh, so that went on. But then recently Rob had, you know, more, I mean, obviously he's the front man, so people, uh, came to him, and I guess he went to Rosenberg, and then, uh, so here's where somebody drops a uh, small squid ink into the water. So now everything is going to turn into he said, he said, he said. So according to Liefeld, Rosenberg told him that he had sold it to Andrew Rev. Now, Calvin, do you know who Andrew Rev is? Only 
for what you tell me. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm not going to claim to well, know much about Andrew Well, sometimes it's bad to be the secret keeper of comics. <laughs> so Andrew Rev, it goes back, you know, before the dawn of time, deeper magic from before the dawn of time, uh, <laughs> to the early 90s, uh, when he bought up the assets of Kamiko, which was a comics company from the 80s black and white bust mm. that but debuted the early work of Matt Wagner a published mage mm-hmm. it published the first work by Matt uh-huh. Wagner it published the first work by Bill Willingham Elementals it published the early work of Brian Azzarello um, that's just the tip of the iceberg uh-huh. there was a lot of great people who worked there a lot of great books that were there Grendel it also published mm. Grendel um, so Rev had bought it and the lore goes that uh, you know DC wanted to do a Grendel uh, Batman crossover, but because Rev had the rights, they wouldn't let him, they, you know, he wouldn't relent or he wanted so much money. And uh, Matt Wagner went on like a very long battle to get the rights to his character back, but he eventually did. However, Willingham never got the rights to uh, the Elementals back, and Rev published these, these you know, non-creator-owned participation books. Uh, anyway, his reputation is really as someone who is very, 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 Difficult to work with, to put it in the most mild and uh, non-libelous uh, ways. Yeah. <laughs> I think you can yeah, good. That he is, it's a good way to put it. a little unusual and eccentric. Yes. Well, that is true as well. But but so so but that was thirty years ago. Now let's f- go forward. So um, you know, I should find. Let me just read a line from Liefeld's Facebook post because. Uh, Okay. Long story short, after Felton comes to turn of two movie deals in recent years, I contacted Hank Canals and informed that I should expect some participation. Scott informed me that, Scott Rosenberg informed me that last summer, during 2018 Comic Con, that in order to raise capital, he, Rosenberg, had sold or partnered with someone for Young Book Comics and Toys. I was stunned, but not surprised. He has the most important assets that Scott possesses, and he needed to raise funds. The man he partnered with is named Andrew Rev, someone unknown to me, and he informed me a number of times over the past year, he being Rev now, Mm -hmm. that he could make me a big success in comics, next Todd (laughs) McFarlane even, and told me I could audition for producing Young Blood Comics. What? You could imagine how well that went over. (laughs) So, so did he not know that how, Rob clue, how clueless is this guy? He did. This guy. I should have followed, I, I should have spewed out following an unexpected conversation with Andrew Rev guy about publishing. In short, it was very disrespectful and I had to put distance between me, these people, and my creations, which were now in a foreign domain. So long story short, Rob is saying he can't deal with these people. <laughs> so he's not. just walking away, no young blood for him. So I heard the story. I, knowing the, how controversial both Rev and Rosenberg are, uh, sent one of my writers to write a story, so I, I would not taint it. But um, so interestingly, Scott Rosenberg told our writer something very interesting. Um, trying to find it here because it's so shocking that uh so okay well he talked to a writer talked to both rev and rosenberg and more than an hour on the phone rev never used liefeld's name referring to him only as that creator because he said he didn't want him to give it give him any publicity <laughs> rev bounced wildly between praising liefeld for everything from the quality of his artwork to his boldness to his savvy as a marketer while also criticizing him pretty harshly especially his decision to go public with his problems with rev by an extension the in utero company that is terrific production that's the name of rev's new company terrific mm. production Rev suggested Liefeld as a fat cat creator getting flown out to London, whose agenda is less about making indie comic books, more about getting in the news to catch Hollywood's attention. Rev's fitful way of speaking makes him tough to quote. 
but this is as close as he came to one that sums up his side of things. There's 50 ways to get a solution. I'm creative enough to come up with 51. You know what I mean? And when someone has a different agenda, and the biggest agenda is he has his own properties. He's trying to get into Hollywood. Okay, terrific production isn't making movies here. More power to you. My answer, I hope you make a billion with a movie. I hope it's bigger than the Marvel title he associated with. I hope he makes mega billions and stop interfering with a company that don't didn't even release anything. Leave our creators alone. But uh, the problem is that you didn't even release what, anything, dude. He, what is he talking about? Okay, so now here's the Joker in the deck. So our writer also called Scott Rosenberg, and I quote, When reached by phone Monday, Rosenberg largely downplayed his own involvement with the situation, saying that Youngblood was actually owned by Rip Media Inc., not himself. Rosenberg said Rip Media was a corporate entity, quote unquote, that he once owned and that had actually made the deal with Liefeld in the late nineties to put the money into awesome comics. Rosenberg said he had no longer owned Rip Media, but was still close to that company and aware of its actions. Ultimately he said it was Glenn Eggert, who Rosenberg works with on other ventures, who made the Rip Media deal with Rev. So, so now according to Andrew Rev he made the deal with Scott Rosenberg. So you got two pretty unreliable narratives uh, yeah. here. So, um, and Rosenberg is admitting that he has knowledge of what the company does. So, 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 so what mean, kind of games are they playing? Well, it could be, I can see how it goes. I can see that, like, if it's your business partner whose idea this is and who makes the deal, and you're like, and you actually talk to the guy who the deal is made with, and you're like, yeah, yeah, okay, deal signed, then you might legitimately say you made a deal with this guy because he agreed to the deal that you made. Sure, okay. That's a one. Sure. That's a nice uh, yeah. interpretation. So since all this happened a couple weeks ago, incredibly, uh, Andrew Rev has gone on Twitter under his own Twitter, um, under his own Twitter banner, and it is just the gift that keeps giving. It is gone insane. Um He's just trying to get people to work with him. Uh, uh, quote some of the strange okay. things. Okay, well, I'm said. trying to get some some really good good ones here because let me tell you, it is one of a kind. And some people keep asking me, "Is this a parody?" I'm like, "No, it's not a parody. This is just how it is." Um, let's see. Uh, Terrific Realm is the first company to focus on the side stories, such as staff that is impacted by their job as the average reader. In contrast to that, the outcome of a negative is often affected by the people we allow to influence and impact us. It is sort of like uh, one of those late-night radio things that just spews out uh, words. And so, okay, this is officially word salad. Yes. That, <laughs> yeah, word good. salad is, in fact, a clinical term, people. Yeah. And it, it does say something that, at the very least, maybe you're sleep-deprived. Okay. <laughs> I Well, based on how much he... he um, Words, words to press. Follow us if you are, follows us if you are owed money or product from Loot Crate, because Terrific Production LLC will try, not promise, to report on what's happening as a free service to help fans get news. We're all in this together. Let me repeat that. They're going to try to get what's going on with Loot Crate. Try. Not promise, though. We're just going to try. Not promise. And why Loot Crate in particular? Well, there's all that stuff with Loot Crate getting shut down now. DM us and we'll set up a time and date to hear you out. At Terrific, we love passion and talent. Understand Youngblood has extremely heavy competition. But then again, Terrific Production is where the dreams come true. If you are working your butt off, help us out, sell. E.G. Vampirella. <laughs> uh, I, I, uh, I, I have no 
comment. Yeah. So, <laughs> I, I feel like someone, you ever see those, like, robot text generators mm-hmm. where there's, like, this bot, and it's not the best bot, the one pretending to be a Ukrainian teenager, but, like, uh, a, a bargain basement bot pretending to be a person? This really sounds Wait, like a bargain basement I bot. I gotta read one more. I gotta, I gotta read two more, you guys. We have intentionally left each tweet open to interpretation so you, you, the artist, can create the scene as you see it. That should be fun. When we use a character like Thor, it's not Marvel's Thor until they give approval. The series is copyrighted and trademarked. Terrific production, LLC 2019. He's just been tweeting this garbage on, on Twitter. Listen to this. Words to the press. We have a fantastic economy, but if you are not careful, you could end up like Loot Crate bankrupt follows if you are owed money or product from loot crate because terrific production llc will try not promise to report on what's happening if we can to help fan <laughs> I, I have no words can't describe i don't so how would you feel if you found out that your creation was in the hands of oh, this that, person that guy <laughs> you know what i'd it be unhappy be the worst thing because what you really don't want is you don't want someone with bad taste but competent. Because somebody who is competent but has terrible taste can make something really terrible out of your work. But yep. someone who is just an incompetent weirdo will not succeed in creating anything. So at least there won't be a terrible adaptation. Right. That's right. Well, there, there will be terrific, <laughs> terrific production. Yeah. Yes. Is it true? Uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. That's right. So, um, you know, I, I know that Scott Rosenberg is also coming back. Okay. So he, uh, had to talk about it with a lot of people at San Diego and, uh, on the webpage, mm. actually. I'm, I'm actually working on reporting on that. And, uh, his daughter is involved with it now. Mm. So, hey, listen, you know, he's back. And this uh, is, who knows the, this is the Rosenberg of the Platinum Studios, the, um, defunct IP farm. Yes. Um, yeah. But, you know, I hope he's learned some lessons. Maybe this time he's learned we'll some lessons. We'll find out. Yes, we will find out. So. Yeah, I am, I am rem- reminded of a certain infamous fan who every single time he pops up on the radar, it's totally different this time, totally different. He, he's, he's, please give him donations. He's walking the uh, Appalachian Trail to fight domestic violence somehow, oh, give him some money to finance his Appalachian Trail vacation, I mean, to fight domestic violence. Wow. Or, or, you know, some other such thing that is totally legit this time. Please give me money, you guys. Um, spoiler alert, it's never actually different. Yeah. Well, trust, you know, it just around the offices of the B, you know, on our Slack, we spend spare time just make, you know, reading terrific tweets to each other or, you know, uh, screenshotting them. So, uh, dare I say, we're just getting started and there is more to come. Yes, no doubt. <laughs> no doubt. And yeah. on that note. And on that note, uh, do we have anything else? To yes, we do. We have yeah. to oh, yeah. We do. do. No, yeah. we have the Dan and Jim show. Yes. Yeah. And, and that's Dan Dio and, and Jim Lee who do their annual sit down with, yes. uh, Milton Grieve over at ICV2. Uh, it's a two-part interview, and and there's some interesting tidbits of news, and I, I don't know what you, what else you would call it. Um, well, I mean, you know, uh, they very rarely, in they some very rarely give it, uh, interviews, and yeah. we certainly, I think, on the last time we all got together. By the way, this is the first time the three of us have been in the same room. Together. I know it's been a while. How long? Like two uh, it's been a while. Like yeah, well, I mean, two of us have been in the room together. Yes, but, but yes, but getting all three. When shall we three meet again? You know. Yeah. Uh, Nude, I have nude. Uh, uh, month month no. Yes. No. So, uh, anyway, but yeah. the last time we did a podcast, we were talking a lot about 
DC at San Diego and what the heck happened mm. and, uh, you know, what is AT&T doing? And, uh, you know, they kind of addressed some of that in this interview, Calvin. Yeah. I mean, I guess they did. Um, uh, I mean, <clears throat> um, I mean, the things that I found uh, relatively uh, interesting about this interview uh, is uh, some of their discussion of sales, mm-hmm. um, which I found a little bit confusing, although apparently they're, uh, the periodical sales seem to be, you know, um, be growing and up. But they, they, I found their discussion about graphic novel sales a little bit vague. I didn't quite understand what they're referring to. In the past, they have talked about how the category has been a big growth for them. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know whether they're talking about the most recent book collections uh, of comics, uh, maybe over the last year that that didn't sell well in the periodical market, and it didn't sell well as collections either. Well, Calvin, if you looked at the book scam numbers last year, which Brian Hibbs analyzed, mm-hmm. he said that DC had dropped from the number two graphic novel publisher to the number eight graphic yeah. novel publisher. So, and I yeah. believe we also discussed that yes, in the last did. episode. So I believe that's what Stan is talking yeah. about. So that's what he's talking about. Yeah. So, so uh, you know, we, we should do an entire episode that is just um, devoted to the graphic novel question because the sales are not, you know, not growing. I mean, it's certain mm. the kids cover graphic novels are growing, but in adult graphics novels, not as strong. And what are the reasons for that? So a lot of people have said that they sell more copies of new 52 number one volume ones than mm. they do rebirth volume ones. So mm. a lot of the rebirth books from two or three years ago, Kate, okay. I remember sitting down with Jeff Johns and him telling us all about them. Uh, a lot of those books just don't sell that well mm. in collected well, editions. I, I think part of the problem is that people were under the mistaken impression that Rebirth really was a full reboot. And people were like, oh, no, not another reboot. I've got reboot with, you know, overload. Whereas, in fact, like, if you paid attention, you realized it wasn't really a reboot. It was just like a smudging of the edges, adding a few extra things in to twiddle what you already had. Now, am I mistaken? Weren't the fans really happy with, fans with Rebirth? Happy with yeah. Fans were happy. Pre-existing fans yeah. were happy with Rebirth. But I think it was very confusing to people mm. who aren't in the loop. So if you're a fan who already understands, you know, mainstream comics and is like reading, say, comicsbeat.com, you know exactly what Rebirth is. You're in on it. You're like, okay, awesome. And you just buy it. Things are back to normal for you. But if you are somebody looking on the bookshelves and trying to figure out, is this old DC? Is this new DC? What does this even mean? I don't understand. I think it's confusing. Yes. I think the smartest thing they could have done is to label everything rebirth for like a few months of transition and then go back to not having any event branding on the covers and just have it be Superman or Batman. Because after a certain point, you're already reborn. Rebirth is pointless and just going to confuse people. Yeah. Uh, I, I think there's a lot of sense to what you just said. You know what DiDio says? In the, I'm going to read it. Uh, he says, graphic novels has been a weak spot for us that we have to address because that has been such a mainstay of our publishing schedule and publishing plan. If that's changing in any way, shape, or form, whether it's because of lack of interest or because digital is cutting into that business, we're not really sure. We have to explore that a little bit further. Well, I mean, I classic think, DiDio, by the way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I do think. I do think some of the bookstore market ended up being digital market. Mm-hmm. Um, but then in the next thing, 
Jim Lee is moaning about how digital is flat. Well then, yeah. So, so I mean, I, 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 I just digital. I mean, if, yeah, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't. You know, if they're both flat, then one's not eating the other. Yeah. I mean, that's not where you're losing all your numbers. And and we also have to remember also now they do uh, they must have some confidence in the book trade, um, or just an understanding that this is where they had better be. No, this is where they had better be, because, I mean, that's where the money is. And also, there is a natural hunger for this material there. Right. But, unfortunately and ironically, over the last mm, 25 years, Marvel and DC have not been good at selling comics to kids. At all. Mm. Right. Well, that's changing fast. Yeah, it's I mean, got to be. I mean, getting better at it. But historically... Well, DC can't issue. be as bad as Marvel. Uh, I mean, they've got, they've got a foot in the market uh, in more ways than one. I mean, Marvel does really seems to... It's hard to know what they're doing. Right. But what I mean is that DC is struggling with how to do it. Mm. They've well, tried a yeah, bunch of yeah. stuff. Well, that, that, yeah, I don't and disagree with that. I'm not saying they won't get it right. But I'm just saying that they are aware it's something they need to work on. And they're clearly you trying. Know. And we'll see how it goes. Well, the, we've got a lot of stuff slated. Yeah, this this big turnaround because I think you're absolutely right. This big yeah. turnaround on the on the d- doing away with the imprints and basically creating incredible confusion in the marketplace. Now, I do understand their 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 focus on using DC as the brand to drive all the sales. I can understand that. But I'm not sure that uh, those imprints were that confusing to the marketplace about who was actually publishing them. I think it's office politics. What's I think you're right because yeah, what's is. confusing is wiping this whole thing out after spending what whatever amount of money they spent to introduce them to get everybody comfortable with it. I mean, one of the things that came out of ALA was everyone was confused. Thinking that not only were they getting rid of imprints, they think they were canceling titles. Yeah, but then they announced a list of 50 titles that were coming out through 2021. Yeah. So it is very, you know, look. And they told me they weren't cutting anything. It's no fun when your AT&T buys you, okay? Let's face it. Let's be honest here. (laughs) Obviously. Also, I'm going to be honest. As someone who quite enjoys DC Comics, I mean, I really do. Mm. It is my favorite between DC and Marvel. DC's had a weak couple of years content-wise. Yes. I mean, the books have been fine. There have been a few standouts. I really do think that Bendis' Superman run is underrated, but Superman runs tend to be underrated, uh, even when they're good. Um, <laughs> Very true. I mean, We're still like, by. like you can just say up and down, oh, this is a good Superman run, but it'll be like five years before anyone remembers. And they're like, oh, do you remember All-Star Superman? That was great. And then like they'll sell like a million copies after, I don't know, it hits the it in a certain way eventually. Yeah. But like Superman books tend to go under the radar. Um, but, you know, I mean, they, I'm not saying they haven't had some good books, but they haven't had any real breakouts. Mm. Well, I mean, what about all that Batman metal stuff? Well, which they were claiming was really selling. And they're also, they're also kind of hyping this year of the villain too. Yeah. Well, that's a classic so that's an Dan event that they're having. <laughs> yes. What can we have now? You're the villain. Yes. I mean, deceased. Yes. You're the villain is just a standard event. Maybe yeah. it'll be good. Maybe yeah. it won't, but they're hyping it because it's their event. Um, Batman metal. I mean, I guess it's a hit, but it's one of those things where you're like, you have to be that very specific audience or it's not going to work for you. 
you have to be someone who says, what if Batman were more metal? And, yeah. and that's fine. But I mean... And you know what I also was interested but, about this interview? Oh, but still, it's, it's go just, go ahead. still, even one book does not make a run. Yeah. I mean, what? it's yeah. just... It's just been a little thin on the... Yeah. The, You're not alone in saying this, Kay. And I, I have some personal theories, which involve greener pastures for good creators. Yes. So, um, yeah, Calvin, what were you going to say? Um, well, I, I just also, what I found interesting about the interview was how, uh, Dan talking about how he, oh, he hates variant covers and he hates these gimmicks. Yeah, and- well, <laughs> you know, let me tell you, this interview could have been, what was Heidi McDonald saying for the last 20 years? <laughs> I think this is a great idea. I think, yeah. like, one more. Uh, thing that, that Jim Lee said, right. There's one brand, that's the DC brand, but we're producing content that's appropriate for different, what we call ages and stages, quote unquote, different demographics or different age groups yeah. of readership. We're leaving those DC kids, DC and DC black label. That's the only qualifier. I, mean, I have only been saying this for 40 freaking years. Like I've said I, on this podcast, yes. Thanks, Jim. Yes. Thank you for listening, Jim. Okay. Thank you so, for listening. So if you are listening, <laughs> Jim Lee, if you are listening to this podcast, I have a humble proposal for you. Hire Heidi McDonald <laughs> as a consultant. Yeah, hire me back. Yeah. Hire no, back. Not yeah. even full time. You, know, you don't even need to have her around the office if you don't want to. But, you know, <clears> hire her <throat> as a consultant. Pick her brain. Yeah, there you go. I, I don't know. I might be out of good ideas. I might be done. So. <laughs> well, we'll there see. you go. But, um, yeah. So. So anything else from the interview that struck you, Calvin? Um, well, I, I was interested in, in their uh, how they would talk about dealing with Mad uh, Magazine. Oh, yeah. They well, talk a little bit about that. Kind of I mean, star, like it sounds kind of like Mad is not going, you know, to no, it's not going away. Rainbow Bridge. It's just yeah, it's not going away, yeah. but it, it's still. I mean, it's a it's a pretty significant downgrade, and I don't see how they're going to expand its growth you know, by limiting where you can yeah, buy you it know what they, and what you publish in it. You know, one thing that Dan said that really, he said, uh, he said, why, what happened about it? Dan Video says, let's go right to the core of it. There are two changes taking place. The first change coming off the newsstand. The newsstand's business is challenged. It's all through. Is it enough to support the magazines? No different than any other magazine. I got to give Dan credit. That is, look, I mean, yeah. newsstand sucks. Yeah. No, Absolutely. Um, I mean, it's a, and it's a tough market for any kind of magazine. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So he's so. Uh, yeah. So anyway, this is this is a really great uh interview. Cal, uh, yeah, Milton will sit down with him again, I believe, at New York Comic Con. So uh, you know, uh, more to come, Milton. More to come. But I do think what Kate said is pretty. Yeah, good. I think that there's a lot of office. There's a lot of oh, new um uh executive uh heads and right. things have to be rearranged. Well, you know, one other, the one other thing <laughs> that uh, we should mention just to be end up on an up note is that uh, that uh, Marie Javens uh, has been given a brand new uh, she's been given a new um, title here. Here we go. Yeah, she's got a promotion. Marie Javens editor, beloved editor. I don't think anyone's ever said a bad word about her. She promoted to executive editor of new publishing initiatives. That sounds great. According to Newsarama, she'll be leading a new division where? internally. The initiatives include where? renewed focus on DC's international efforts. Okay, yeah. so at DC. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mary Javis mm-hmm. has been at DC for, yeah, she uh-huh. ran there. Well, our dear listeners may not know that. That's yeah. true. Yeah, she All was right. editing Justice League Group Editor but uh, before that. But yeah, so Marie is a much-loved editor at DC, and she's been given more to do, uh, which if you know Marie is very, very ironic but uh anyway uh good for her she's absolutely one of the best people in comics all right 
Okay. So, so we, uh, Calvin, we have. Calvin? Oh, we have more? No. no. Oh, no? <laughs> Calvin. What do we have? So, what do you think we have? What are you and Meg doing this week? Well, this week we have another episode of Star um, Stargazing. Uh, we've got me and Meg. We've got a, a, another <laughs> another segment of Stargazing coming up right now. Well, hello, um, more to come listeners. We're back for another episode of Stargazing. And you know what the drill is on Stargazing. I get a chance to talk with PW uh, Graphic Novels Review Editor Meg Limke about some of the best reviewed books of the week. Hey, Meg, how you doing? Hi, everyone. It's great to be back. We've had such a busy conference season. We haven't chatted for a couple weeks. Yeah, I know. We've kind of been on hiatus, but we're back, uh, and we're back in a big way uh, once again, of course, with really uh, wonderful books. But just just to remind our listeners, uh, even though I guess I just did, uh, just just what are we talking about (laughs) when we talk about stars? We're talking about the books that have received a star in addition to being a positive review. You know, there's reviews at Publishers Weekly, like all – Critical um, magazines run the gamut. You know, some are critical or negative and some are quite positive and then some have a star attached, which means that they are notable and really excellent and deserving of special attention um, from our audience, which includes booksellers, readers, librarians, rights folks. So we really put a lot of thought into that designation. And from my perspective as the reviews editor, I don't write the reviews. We have anonymous reviewers who write the reviews, but when they recommend a star, I really take some time with that book and cool. decide if I agree, and then we go ahead and grant it. And we're going to talk about two books that not only got a star, they're books that I particularly loved myself, and so I'm happy to chat about them. Yeah, well, these are two books I think we can all get behind. So, yeah, so mm-hmm. what, are we do- what are we talking about this week? So just going in publishing month order, we're actually going to look back slightly to April to talk about Clyde Fans by Seth. Though in the heat right now in New York, it feels like uh, an interesting moment to discuss the book because it's set in um, the in the era of this family who own a, a fan, like a, like you know, oscillating fan business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then over the course of the period of time that air conditioning takes over the market and the demise of their of their family business. Um, the review says an operatic story as rich in intimacy as it is breathtaking in scope. In a lot of ways, it's a character study in two parts. It's a character study of two different brothers with very different personalities. Mm. And to me, how it's really about how, the way these two different personalities address and deal with um, a legacy of uh, like emotional abuse from their father. Mm. Which is which is directly it wasn't directly addressed as often. It comes up briefly in the book, but you feel mm. the shadow of the father of the patriarch um, who leaves the family, you know, through the entire 488 pages. Um, but the two brothers, Abe and Simon Matchcard, are just completely different personalities. Mm. Um, Abe is a like blustering salesman who's very sure of himself. There's a real like death of a salesman arc to his character, yeah. where he opens up, kind of looking back with various regrets. Um, but still very proud of his sales techniques and achievements. And his brother, Simon, who the one time he goes out to try Mm. and do a trip um, for sales, like completely loses it because he can't be, he's agoraphobic. He really can't deal with people at all other than his family and his collection of stuffed toys that talk to him. Yeah. And of course his collection of postcards. Yes, exactly. So Simon is also, um, probably a stand-in for many folks in the comics community, a collector who yeah. becomes obsessed with um, this very specific variations of photography 
aspect to them where they have like tomatoes that are really huge and a person pushing them in like little folksy captions. Yeah. And they're kind of manipulated, uh, photography. And it's, I think at one point in the book, mm-hmm. um, you know, Abe talks about how, you know, he came to realize maybe there's some, you know, larger metaphor there of, of men, mm-hmm. you know, overwhelmed by circumstances bigger than him that, that seem to refer to his brother's situation. But, uh, yeah, this is just an mm-hmm. incredibly moving crafted. I mean, craft, it, I mean, the word craft just overwhelms you to a certain extent about this book. I mean, um, just in terms of the drawing, um, the panel layout, but also the sense of mood and regret and kind of epic, um, uh, well, epic regret in many ways. There's little fantastical elements. Also, there's um, these these reveries that each of them go into that bring in dreamlike elements. There's repeated motifs. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as Seth himself talks about, there's a bit of a style change across the course of the book because he wrote over, I believe, it's 16 years. Yeah, simply, yeah. Um, and he talks a little bit about thinking about going back and rewriting the first section and then eventually just deciding to move ahead and publish it. And it's just interesting also thinking about the way – in the introduction, he talks about his own um, development as an artist and his own thinking about the work. And that's also reflected in how Simon obsesses over the cards, you know, and he, the way he mm. kind of tries to consider the authorship of these cards and talks about, like, the authenticity of certain cards. Um, a real kicker is that somebody else, like, beat Simon to yes. the book about yeah. novelty postcards. Yeah. I mean, it's just really like, oh, like the one little piece of the world he's obsessed with, he still can't put his own yeah. stamp on it. Yeah. Yeah, this is a, I mean, I've heard Seth uh, um, at, at, at several conventions, well, at one, at, in particular at, the, at TCAF back in May, uh, talk about the, his work on the book. And he's really, I mean, for a guy that's very serious about what he does and incredibly good at it, I mean, he really is able to talk about his work in an engaging, accessible way. Mm-hmm. He really invites you into the work uh, and, and, and will and shows you around and how he put it together. And it really is, uh, the, the work really has an emotional core. I mean, it's kind of driven by an internal monologue by both mm-hmm. characters. But really, uh, for a book that is so exquisitely formulated in terms of how it tells the story, uh, there's an incredible amount of there, a real emotional impact as you see these two characters kind of watch their lives kind of head toward this kind of regretful and and um, really uh, – uh, I mean, I don't want to make it sound super sad, but it is kind of about – I mean, it's, it's there's a certain amount – to a certain degree, it is about failure. It's very engaging, though. I mean, it definitely yeah. is a book that I sat down and read, and I um, – I wouldn't say approach with trepidation, but you pick it up and it feels like this hefty art object, a real tome that he's got a very specific style. Um, that's that sort of, you know, he, he wears these like bespoke, the, the set yeah, himself well, like uh, wears like bespoke suits and this little hat. And like, it's, it feels like it's going to be perhaps all about the, the design, yeah. but, but I reading it, I got really pulled into the story and these, and these two men and thinking about like how masculinity was defined, how purpose was defined and success. Um, and there's some really uh, almost trippy monologues with Simon where he thinks yes. about how much just being in the room with his mother and his home mean to him and how realizing like that that is okay, that that like it's almost meditative trippy idea of like, what is a good life? Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny. It's, it really is a story about, uh, 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 
this quest to measure up, uh, mm-hmm. as you were saying, as a man in a time against these standards that, you know, maybe in some ways, I mean, even Abe, it, it wasn't interested in, but he had the ability to appear to be doing it. Yeah, the masquerade. Um, uh, yeah, uh, but uh, and all of it's disguised really as this as this business story. I mean, in, in any ways, mm-hmm. we follow the arc of this company from uh, its growth to its demise. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, uh, uh, um, by them sort of willfully ignoring the impact of air conditioning. I mean, mm-hmm. Abe talks about mm-hmm. it. We saw it and just ignored it. Um, but yeah, it's a really rich book. I mean, this is the thing you can just settle into a chair with this book because uh, every panel it seems to be like exquisitely placed for impact. And it's a gorgeous object. They've uh, it's drawn in quarterly who published it, mm. and they have it in a, a box. So you slide it in yeah. and out of this box. And it's got yeah. a really beautiful design, and there's a cut out cover. Oh yeah, uh, like everything that Seth does. Uh, it, it, it's something to, <laughs> it's, 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 it's something to behold as an object as well as, uh, uh, this extraordinary, um, like well-crafted, emotionally, uh, engaging narrative. Uh, yeah. Way to go, Seth. <laughs> the, the last line of the review is, this isn't just a story or even as it terms itself a picture novel, which is how Seth terms it. Hmm. It is a brilliant journey into the heart of mid-century darkness. Yeah. Well, I'll agree with that. <laughs> so the next book we want to talk about is a family story of a very different type. And it's coming out now. It's a July release. And in fact, I believe just hit the bestseller list, the New York Times bestseller list. Great. It's George Takei's They Called Us Enemy. Takei, who, better known as Sulu from Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just his memoir, his, his experience as a young child, about five, five or six years old, in Japanese internment in World War II in the U.S., um, and the experience of him and his parents and his sibling. It's co-created with Justin Isinger, Stephen Scott, and Harmony Becker, who is the artist. Um, Harmony's work is really incredible in this book. Yeah, it's, it's really quite good. Um, there's a lot of hype about this title. Uh, you know, Top Shelf is the publisher, and they really talked about it as a project that they saw with the same potential as March with um, by Representative John Lewis, which they also published. And, you know, with that, you always approach something with a lot of hype with some trepidation, and it was really – and I, I really loved the book. I thought it was really well done. Um, and for such a huge topic and such a per- particularly resonant topic in our current political yes. environment um, – and really not a very long book. It's 208 pages. I thought the author team did a fantastic job doing it justice in a concise storyline. Uh, and also um, with Harmony's work, really giving the characters a fullness and depth um, where the art and text um, are, are interacting beautifully in, in the work. Um, so essentially, you know, to Kay's family, he tells very briefly the historical context of internment and um, Franklin Roosevelt signing the executive order 9066. He's five years old, and with his father, mother, and siblings, he's taken uh, in 1942 through 1946 for four years. He's interned yeah. um, and at two different camps. And this is re- relevant because the second Tula Lake 
the second internment camp that they're moved to, it's because his parents specifically refuse um, to sign a loyalty oath that was put to interned citizens um, asking two questions, you know, if they would disavow loyalty to the emperor of Japan and if they would fight for the U.S. if called upon. And if you can imagine the situation of having been forcibly interned and then asked these questions, he said his parents were really appalled. American citizens we're talking about here, of course. Yeah, American citizens, of course. Uh, The first question implied, first of all, there was a loyalty to the emperor. So this was something that they felt that even by that, you know, there's a contradiction in signing that question because it says you disavow a loyalty that implies that loyalty exists in the first place. And also essentially like, what does that mean? Um, which he discusses in the book. And then the second question, you know, to say, we've, we've just interned you, would you like to be released in order to fight? Um, they, but you they, have, but by doing that, you actually were, were, uh, you were, you were resigning your citizenship, if I'm not mistaken from the book, and you were pledging allegiance to a foreign company, a country. Yeah, I mean, by, it was well, really by, by an saying awful no, situation. No. I mean, a terrible yeah. situation. If, if I could just jump in. I mean, mm-hmm. this book is both incredibly charming and absolutely dispiriting, just right. as you mentioned, um, because we, the country seems to be heading down the same pathway in many mm-hmm. ways. But uh, it's really a wonderful book, both uh, in terms of uh, you know how his family comes off as uh, fully uh, realized uh, characters in mm-hmm. the narrative, as they would have to. Uh, but really, uh, in its ability to put their experience in a context that was going, of what was going on beyond the camp. Uh, I, I really think they did a terrific job. Yeah, so Piquet, with the art and also comments he's making in the book, relates it to the current situation, both with, um, travel ban, bans and, um, the concentration camps essentially being, uh, held of people, um, trying to cross the border into the U.S. So he does that visually and also in discussing, uh, using like, um, the example of him giving a talk. Yes, that's, he uses that device, uh, throughout the book to, to put everything in context and to, uh, and to, and actually to look back on sequences of his experience. For instance, he was very young. He was five years old right. and he, he recalls how, you know, the, the whole trip to these camps was an adventure to him, though he noticed, you know, really that his parents were really doing their best to try to shield him from the brutal reality of their being essentially being imprisoned. There's this du- there's a duality, which is really beautifully done, um, both in the narration and the art where you see the sense of wonder and like almost excitement as a five-year-old that his parents say his parents very purposefully try and say we're taking a trip you know like guess what we're all going somewhere together I mean they're they're trying to craft and and shield their uh, craft the experience and shield their children from the trauma that's happening to them Um, and then him looking back, like remembering that initial sense of excitement as a child, which shows in the art, and then also remembering and understanding in a different way, you know, seeing his mother crying, seeing the tenseness of his father's jaw. Um, and it, in that way, there's also this real universality of it to the way that we look back as children at anything that's sort of uh, unfortunate that happens and how you have a different understanding of it as an adult and you see the appreciation he had for his parents and how they were able to handle it both as, as human beings trying to undergo this horrible experience and also how to parent through it. Yeah. Um, there's yeah. a really beautiful tribute to his, his family, yeah. you know, within that. Um, and he's also and, able to mm-hmm. kind of portray, uh, to give a sense of life in the camps, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and the range of, of 
both despicable treatment by the government uh, and really the heroic uh, reactions uh, of, of, of American citizens told it somehow or other by, by virtue of how they look uh, and their past ancestry um, are no longer to be trusted as American citizens. It's, it's really heartbreaking, a heartbreaking story. Uh, uh, but he also goes on later to show some of the developments later and people looking back in uh, the country trying to deal with uh, what it has done to its own citizens. I mean, my experience has been that this hasn't, that honestly, the, the period of Japanese internment has not been discussed at all to the extent that you would anticipate in American culture. Um, and it's, it's really been kind of pushed away. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't see it discussed openly. Um, for me, I grew up in Seattle, Washington, where it was taught, you know, mm-hmm. because Seattle was a, was a major center for Japanese American culture in the U.S., Mm-hmm. Um, and the book No No Boy is a was written by University of Washington mm-hmm. uh, student, and so it's that was taught for me in high school. And there's a play based around it. But I was speaking to Harmony, actually the artist at um, ALA, and she was saying this wasn't something that she, that she, she turned to research it because as somebody growing up, she hadn't been taught it in school and was trying to f- understand more like why this was something that had been, yeah. if I'm remembering my conversation mm-hmm. with her accurately, that she hadn't been taught it and she became really obsessed with it. Um, her work previously as a web cartoonist, um, the development and maturation of the work in this book is really incredible. You know, I think this is her <coughs> first published book. Yeah, it's very manga-influenced as well, and Mm -hmm. she uses it, puts it to use really well. Yeah, and there's something so beautiful and interesting sort of meta about that as well, that it's a Japanese art style in a very American story, and you see the influence of it. Um, It's not not a straight manga style. It's a manga-influenced style, but it's put to the service of telling this very American story, um, and there's a lot of layers to the way that that works, I think, in the narrative. Um, And I actually... Yeah, and she does a beautiful job with all the female characters as well, which I think is worth noting. Um, I talked to the publisher as well about that, and they said, you know, if you look at just the script, just the language, there's not as much conversation from the women in the story, his mother in particular. But reading the book, you don't feel that way. You feel her as a character so strongly, and it's because of Harmony's art. All right. Well, it really is a terrific, a terrific book. And actually, we've been talking about two really terrific books so mm-hmm. so go out and buy them <laughs> so Seth, <laughs> Seth Clyde fans from DNQ and they called us uh, Intermeet by George Decay uh, all from uh, Top Shelf uh, Meg thanks so much for uh, bringing us once again um, some really great books to talk about thanks everyone I hope we'll get to talk again soon more to come okay always great to hear you guys talk comics yeah yeah so, and it's always great to hear you guys talk it's really great being back in the room well, that, both of you really enjoyed this it's good really this is a, a bit of a slow news week i mean it's unusual for us not to have all even more things yeah, to talk about we just had to cut off the discussion yeah Calvin. we did but well, but, but still but still it's I, I, a lot easier to cut off yeah yes i think I, I, i'm kind of with kate I, on that well I, it's just an odd week I that's all yeah. i i think uh, i i feel like both of the stories that we were just talking about are going to continue on and on and on yeah. No doubt. No doubt. And uh, you should have seen me, dear listeners, sitting on my couch going, wait, wait, but where's the rest of the news? Mm-hmm. No, seriously, but where's the rest of the news? Am I missing something? I think well, we everyone hit... is allowed to take August off. Yeah, I think we had a summer, okay. you know, kind of summer dry spot here, but, but that's fine. don't you worry. There will be 
More to come.